Welcome to our May Tosca 3030. Today we're going to talk about two topics. One is the chemical data reporting amendments that EPA has recently released, which will revise how you do your data reporting in 2020. And secondly, we will talk about the implications of a recent court case uh, no, it's not. Uh, it's not the Trump subpoenas, but a recent court case uh, about uh, CBI in connection with the active-inactive substances rule, which will have a significant impact on how you substantiate CBI under CDR in 2020 as well. Uh, next slide. That's how you signed in. I'm Herb Stryker. Next slide. I'm joined today by my colleague uh, Taylor Johnson. Uh, Taylor is an associate in our Tosca group. This is the first time you'll be presenting. He's going to do a bang-up job. Uh, and actually, actually, he, okay, so as I mentioned today, we're going to talk, oh, next slide. We're going to talk today about the proposed amendments to 2020 CDR and the impact of the Environmental Defense Fund, the EPA decision on CDR reporting. Uh, and I'm now going to turn it over to Taylor, who's actually going to speak for most of the 30 minutes, and then I'll have seven or eight minutes or so to talk about the EDF case, which is a very, very important case. Taylor. Thanks, Herb. Pleasure to be here. So we're going to start off with a quick general overview of the Chemical Data Reporting, or CDR, uh, under TSCA. Uh, Section 8A of TSCA authorizes the EPA administer to promulgate rules, uh, such as the citation we've provided for you there, requiring manufacturers and processors of chemical substances to maintain records and submit information to EPA. Uh, the CDR rule is the successor to the old inventory update rule. It requires reporting every four years. Uh, it used to be every five years, uh, but now it's every four, and the next reporting year is 2020. And just to get an idea uh, of the scope for the 2016 uh, CDR, EPA received four MUSE from 5,660 sites uh, with an associated 42,464 chemical reports providing information on 8,717 unique chemicals. Uh, so certainly a lot of information out there. So for the upcoming 2020 CDR, uh, companies are required to complete and submit a detailed Form U uh, to EPA via CDX, or the Central Data Exchange, by September 30th, 2020. And so who needs to report? So you need to report if you've manufactured or imported a uh, substance listed on the TOSCA inventory as of June 1st, 2020, that is not exempt. Um, you can see the citation we've provided you there for substance exemptions. In a quantity greater than 25,000 pounds or greater than 2,500 pounds for certain substances at that U.S. site in the calendar year 2016, 17, 18, or 19. And as for that lower reporting threshold uh, for the 2,500 pounds, uh, these are substances that are subject to certain TSCA actions, uh, such as rules or orders proposed or promulgated under TSCA sections 5 or 6. Um, so it's important to know if your substance is subject to one of these actions for those reporting thresholds. So when to submit these reports? Uh, so the submission period is June 1, 2020 through September 30, 2020. And the principal reporting year, or the PRY, is 2019. Um, it's very important to note this principal reporting year um, because companies are required to provide um, via CDX 
company site and chemical identity information, uh, production volume information, manufacturing activity information, and processing and use information. Uh, but they are only required to report the production volume uh, for 2016, 17, 18, and 19. And um, for 2019, you need to report the manufacturing activity and the processing and use information. Um, so that's for that uh, PRY, the principal reporting year, uh, which is 2019. And uh, last but not least, uh, you must substantiate CBI claims up front, and we're going to be getting to that a little bit later in the presentation. So um, why we're all here, the proposed CDR amendments. Uh, so on April 25th, EPA published a proposed rule to revamp CDR requirements and amend Section 8A size standards for small manufacturers. As for the rationale for this rule, uh, the agency believes these proposed amendments may better address EPA and public information needs by providing additional information not currently collected, improve the usability and reliability of the reported data, and ensure the data are available in a timely manner. Uh, comments are due June 24, 2019. And it is important to comment, we strongly encourage that, uh, EPA notes in the preamble to this rule um, that they analyzed concerns identified by submitters of CDR info made as part of public comment opportunities for the 2016 CDR to craft this new proposal. Uh, so they certainly are listening. So um, let's get into these actual proposed amendments. Um, so First, uh, EPA is proposing to replace processing and use codes with codes based on OECD, or Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development codes. Um, many other countries currently use these OECD codes, um, so EPA's belief here is that harmonization would enable industry to better streamline their different country-specific reporting requirements. And in addition, uh, these new codes are going to allow for more specificity. Um, these function category codes will expand from 35 currently to 117. Um, secondly, um, EPA is proposing to include a requirement to report uh, NAICS, or NAICS codes, for sites of manufacture. Um, EPA is going to use these codes um, to better analyze data um, by industry sector. And a lot of you are already familiar with these codes. Um, next, EPA is proposing to modify a requirement to indicate whether chemicals are removed from the waste stream and recycled, remanufactured, reprocessed, or reused, um, and replace that with simply a requirement to indicate whether the chemical is removed from the waste stream and recycled. Um, EPA has indicated that this change is intended to reduce confusion, and it's their intention that any chemical substance that would otherwise be disposed of as waste uh, would be captured by this requirement. Um, additionally, EPA is proposing to add a requirement to report the percentage of total production volume for a chemical substance that is a byproduct. Um, they are, uh, they're going to require that percentages be rounded to the nearest 10% um, unless the percentage is less than 5%. Um, these proposed amendments would also require secondary, the secondary submitter of a joint submission to report chemical-specific functions along with a percentage of the chemical in the imported product. Uh, they would add voluntary data components um, to provide a public contact. Um, so it, it's also uh, it's worth pointing out that uh, because this public contact is intended to be made available to the public, uh, that this voluntary data element would not be able to be claimed as confidential. Um, EPA is also proposing to modify the definition of a parent company. 
uh, this new definition. This would include both U.S. and foreign parent companies. In some situations, the highest level parent company is outside of the United States. Uh, so EPA is proposing that sites that identify the highest level worldwide parent company uh, when applicable. Additionally, EPA is proposing to simplify the reporting process for co-manufacturers. Um, many of you have probably heard of this referred to as toll manufacturers. And under the current CDR rule, the contracting company and the producing company are jointly responsible for reporting and submitting to EPA. Um, so only one report is submitted per reportable chemical and production site. However, as we noted, EPA is proposing to change this reporting mechanism by developing a multi-submitter process. Uh, this would be similar to the process used by foreign suppliers under RESET, where the contracting company is the primary submitter and the producing company is the secondary submitter. Uh, the contracting company would have the responsibility to initiate this co-manufacturer report, and that would then prompt the reporting requirements uh, for the producing company or the secondary submitter. Um, so that's definitely a change that we will be keeping our eye on. Um, additionally, EPA is proposing to allow reporting in specified metal categories for inorganic byproducts and add exemptions for certain byproducts. Uh, specifically, they're proposing to add exemptions for byproducts that are recycled in a site-limited enclosed system and for byproducts that are manufactured as part of non-integral pollution control and boiler equipment. Okay, so one of the more important proposed amendments um, here in these CDR amendments is that EPA is proposing to amend uh, the Section 8A small manufacturer definition. Um, this is following their determination that this revision um, to the current size standards is warranted um, based on inflation. So what they're proposing here is to update the current two-standard definition, um, which appears at 40 CFR 704.3, by increasing the sales level thresholds. Um, these thresholds are based on total annual sales in addition to parent sales. And the first uh, threshold, the first standard here would be uh, is proposed to be increased from 40 million to 110 million. Um, so if your total annual sales um, in addition to your parent company were under 110 million, then you could be considered a small manufacturer. And the second standard is being proposed to be increased um, from 4 million to 11 million. Um, so just to break down um, the differences between uh, these, two, um, these two standards here. Um, so if you want to get in under the first standard, even if you are under 110 million in annual sales, if your annual production or importation volume of a substance at any site is greater than 100,000 pounds, you will not qualify as a small manufacturer unless you meet standard two. Um, so that's sort of the difference between the two standards. Um, standard two, the 11 million standard, is irrespective of production volumes. Um, so that's the difference between those right there. Um, so some of the impacts um, that this small manufacturer definition change could have, so, so sites that meet this definition um, are exempted from the need to report either for the full site if you qualify based on the second standard or for particular chemical substances if you qualify under the first standard. And again, um, there are some exceptions that apply to this. Um, as we noted earlier, if your substance is subject to specific um, uh, specific actions under TSCA proposed rule, um, under 4, 5, or 6, um, then uh, this, that exception would apply to you. EPA has, 
uh, estimated um, that this uh, change to small manufacturer definition would eliminate reporting entirely for 93 industry sites and reduce reporting by eliminating the need to report at least one chemical for an additional 129 industry sites. So it definitely could have a big impact. All right, so let's talk about uh, CBI claims as they relate uh, to CDR. Uh, persons submitting info under the CDR may assert confidentiality claims for information at the time they are submitted. However, uh, you cannot make confidentiality claims for public contact information if voluntarily provided, uh, chemical identities listed on the public portion of the TSCA inventory at the time of submission, and when a response is left blank or designated as not known or reasonably ascertainable. Uh, this last point here is uh, very important. Information not asserted as confidential may be made public without further notice to the submitter. Um, so it definitely highlights the importance of asserting uh, these confidentiality claims. So CBI substantiation. Um, so to be in line uh, with Lautenberg, agency is proposing to amend the CDR substantiation provisions to require substantiation for all confidentiality claims, um, except for information listed in TSCA Section 14C2. Um, this includes some of the uh, information we've discussed earlier, the production volume and joint submission information. Uh, it also includes marketing and sales information and information identifying a supplier or customer. Um, so for these types of information, uh, you would not need that upfront substantiation. And um, so for each data element uh, claimed confidential, um, the submitter must submit detailed uh, written answers um, to six questions that we list here, um, including trade secrets, uh, duration of the claim, prior confidentiality determinations. Uh, I won't read all of them because um, I'm sure that you're all anxious to hear Herb speak. Um, so with that, I will turn it over to Herb Stryker. All right, Stryker. all right. Well, Taylor did a great job. Well, you know, it occurs to me that Let's go back to the last slide. It occurs to me that uh, the CDR is very, very important. It actually plays the has a central role in how EPA is likely to perform risk evaluations under the new TOSCA. Right. Uh, and then particularly important is the processing and use information, um, you know, because that really sort of provides some good detail on how a substance is used and handled by how many workers, uh, you know, and whether it's a consumer product, things of that nature. So that's very, very important. Um, if you sort of think about other countries that call in uh, information, um, so for example, uh, Europe, of course, under registration dossiers, if you're above 10 tons and you have a uh, classified substance, you have to commit uh, submit something called a chemical safety report, which is extraordinarily detailed in terms of how the substance is used and handled and what the exposures are. Uh, and it, it occurs to me, though, now what the authorities do with that chemical safety report is they basically do a hazard-based assessment with a little, very, very qualitative mm. exposure assessment. But if you, were, if you were EPA, you had that kind of level of information, you would be able to do an extraordinarily robust risk assessment under TOSCA risk evaluation. Mm. So it's something to think about. I've always said, and I've repeated many, many times, that for many of the chemicals that are going to be subject to risk evaluation, there's not much debate on the hazard. Uh, these are most of them, at least in the in the few first decade of the program, going to be fairly well known. Uh, uh, you know, the usual suspects type chemicals, 
And there's not very much of debate about the hazards. You could debate about, you know, what certain endpoint, you know, what the point of departure is, uh, or things of that nature. But in terms of the, you know, the, the, the core toxicological data, there's not much debate. The essential question in terms of risk evaluation is going to be the exposure piece. Um, and, and, you know, current CDR is helpful, uh, but probably doesn't provide enough information. What I found rather surprising by this entire proposal uh, was that EPA did not take this as an opportunity to call in exposure information, at least on the 20 chemicals that they've now proposed for prioritization. And perhaps they should have proposed it in advance in order to be able to revamp the CDR specifically for those 10 chemicals. Right. Now, EPA is engaged in a risk evaluation now for, on, for 10 chemicals. Uh, they probably, the CDR report for those uh, will probably come in too late to impact the risk evaluations because a deadline is coming up even before the CDR reports do. But for the 20 that have been proposed for prioritization, it seems to me the CDR report in 2020 could have been used as a very, very valuable tool to collect important information to inform the risk evaluation of those 20 chemicals, assuming they all make the final prioritization list. Right. Uh, but note that EPA is required by law uh, to select 20 by a certain deadline, and they've only proposed 20, so I query whether uh, not all of them will make the list. Uh, so in any event, I find that rather surprising. Let's go to the next slide. So I wanted to talk about... Uh, D.C. Circuit case, which is Environmental Defense Fund uh, versus EPA, and I, I think there are a number of EPA, uh, EDF people on the line here. Yeah, there are. Oh, by the way, there's 155 people on this webinar, so I think that's very, very good. Thank you for spending some time with us this afternoon. But anyway, let's tell you a little bit about the case. You know, as you know, there was a um, um, active, inactive reporting rule uh, that, that many uh, people were engaged in last year. Uh, that has now resulted in uh, the release of the updated inventory, which identifies substances as active and inactive. It also identifies, uh, well, if you're inactive, if you're uh, inactive, that means you're, that no one submitted a notice of activity for that substance. By the way, that, uh, that inventory was published on EPA's website on February 19th. It was widely believed, incorrectly believed, uh, that uh, people had until May 20th uh, or um, 90 days after the release of that uh, to, um, uh, to notify substances that were in commerce after the look-back period. So the way it worked was from June 16, 2006 to June 16, 2016, you reported whether the substance was in commerce or active during that 10-year look-back period. Now, between the time after June 21, 2016, and the time that uh, the notice of activity form B, which is for inactive substances, you're allowed to submit those, there's a gap of several years. And so what EPA decided when they published the, uh, uh, the, the reporting rule for active and inactive substance, they, they decided they would have a 90-day period from the time that they, that they uh, identified inactive substances to allow people to get their form Bs in. So that would actually ensure that if people that actually had manufactured imported substances after June 21, 2016, that those would then be designated as active before the inactive uh, list became official. Right. 
So people thought that the inactive list becomes official on May 20th. That's not correct uh, because there's a, a little bit of uh, you have to read carefully. So when the EPA issued the rule, they said that the administrator would sign a notice, sign a notice um, identifying the substances inactive, and that would trigger the 90-day period. The administrator did not sign the notice on February 19th. The only thing that happened on February 19th is they published the inventory on the website, the updated inventory on the website. There was no notice signed. The notice was actually signed on May 5th. And that actually triggers the 90 days. And so you have until August 5th to get your NOA Form Bs in for any substances on the inactive list that you had in commerce after the look-back period. So be mindful of that. So you now have another opportunity, uh, and I think it's going to be written up in Chemical Watch uh, tomorrow. So you now have an opportunity to sort of correct this thing, and you have 90 days, and don't lose that opportunity. So going back to EDF. Well, the EDF lawsuit had to do largely with the CBI provisions under the uh, active-inactive reporting rule. Uh, now, EDF lost on most of the counts, and I won't go through those because those were specific to that rule. Uh, but the court did agree with EDF on one, uh, a one count, and specifically this has to do with substantiation of CBI. As Taylor told you on a slide before, EPA lists in the CDR rule, and it also lists in the uh, uh, activity, active and active reporting rule, a number of questions that you have to answer in order to substantiate confidential business information or CBI claim for the chemical identity of a substance. When EPA issue now what's missing in that is very, very important is the question of whether the chemical identity can be readily discoverable through reverse engineering. Right? So and that's missing from those questions. It was missing from the questions in the active active uh, reporting rule. It's missing from the questions in this proposed rule. What the DC Circuit held is they held that that is a core and central part of uh, substantiating that the uh, chemical identity is a trade secret. Uh, next slide. So going back, a little bit of history here. So what happened was when EPA had a proposed rule, they had a series of questions that they had proposed to be used to substantiate chemical identity that were geared towards the question of reverse engineering. So they had questions like, does this particular chemical substance leave the site of manufacture in any form? If it does, what measures have you been taking to guard against the discovery of its identity? And if the chemical substance leaves a site in a product that's available to the uh, public or to your competitors, can the chemical substance be identified by analysis of the product? And the court held that EPA's elimination of the, these questions in the final rule was arbitrary and capricious. So let's stay on this for a second here. So let's think about this. So if, if a substance leaves uh, uh, site of manufacture as a product, as an in an effluent, or in an emission, it's probably very difficult to reverse engineer the chemical identity unless you're dealing with a very well-known substance, which then would not be on the confidential inventory anyway, so that the analytical labs already are looking for that type of chemical when they do analyses of effluents or emissions, or there are only very few substances that are released in the effluents or emissions uh, or, in a, or as part of a product that are composition in a product. And so therefore, you can separate out uh, your particular substance 
and then use very, very powerful analytical techniques to reverse engineer it. So, but in most cases, I would think that if a confidential substance or substance on a confidential inventory is released in an effluent or emission, it's not likely that it could be reverse engineered. However, if it is released as in a product, unless you're dealing with a, uh, a mixture of more than, than a couple of substances, uh, then it would be very difficult to reverse engineer. I think once you get it past a few substances, uh, the more complex the uh, product is, the less likely it's going to be possible to reverse engineer. So then what do you do about substances that have relatively simple structures where it should be quite possible for an analytical lab, given today's technology, to reverse engineer the identity? Um, or you have mixtures where only have a few substances. Uh, it seems to me to be very difficult to establish, at least in my mind, that that could not be readily reverse engineered. Now, if you're dealing with complex substances, there are lots of isomers. Yes, I think even with powerful techniques today, uh, you could at least make the case that it would not be, quote, readily reverse engineered, which is the legal standard. It's not reverse engineered given any level of effort. It's reverse engineered readily without undue efforts. Um, also, if you, uh, also if polymers would seem to be very, very difficult to reverse engineer uh, the chemical identity. So I think that would be easy to substantiate. Uh, but there are at least some cases, uh, you know, where it's going to take uh, some imagination and some thought to be able to substantiate uh, that the uh, chemical structure cannot be readily reverse engineered. Next slide. So the court said, and I agree, it makes no sense to treat as confidential the chemical identity of a substance can be readily reverse engineered. And the, I, we already discussed the implications of CDR reporting and maintaining CBI for substances on the confidential inventory. There's no question uh, that this will have to be dealt with in some fashion, whether EPA is going to have to issue a supplemental to the proposed rule to uh, you know, inform people that uh, mm -hmm. they will need to substantiate this, uh, this aspect of CBI for chemical identity or how else they're going to deal with it. My suspicion is they will issue a supplemental proposal. Next slide. My third of further thoughts. Well, I think Taylor did a great job. Uh, next slide. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> And uh, I just want to remind you, 157 people on the phone here, uh, that our next OSHA 3030 is May 22nd. Uh, our next uh, TOSCA 3030 is June 12th, and I won't be giving it because I'll be in Europe speaking uh, at a conference. Um, and then uh, the next uh, FIFRA one, oh, the next REACH one will be in July 10th because I won't be here on June 12th. So um, if you get a break, which I think people are probably happy with. Um, next slide. Yeah, so next Tosca 3030, June 12th. That's Herb, I'm Herbert Stryker, and this is Taylor Johnson. They did a great job here. Now, uh, we have a REACH program in uh, seven minutes, 135. There's 154 of you on the line right now. Uh, we'll see how many of you uh, stay for the REACH program. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.